there's two kinds of people in the world. There's us and them. Us are the people that we know, people that we understand, people that we like. And them are people who aren't like us, people we don't understand. Or they're people who hurt us. We're reading together this ancient letter written to the church in Rome. And in that city, there were also two kinds of people. There were Jews. These were the physical descendants from the family of Abraham in the Old Testament. They were the one nation who had a relationship with God. And there were Gentiles. And the Gentiles were literally everyone else. And so much divided these two groups of people. They didn't get along at all. I mean, we're talking, this is like militant Democrats versus militant Republicans. This is African-American slaves versus abusive Caucasian masters. It's like Westboro Baptist Christians versus the gay community. And the question is, when you've got two groups of people that are so opposed to each other, what would they be like if they both joined the church? I mean, the first two chapters of this letter that Paul wrote to this church in Rome, he's addressed both Jews and Gentiles. We've been looking at this. He's been showing them both how each one of them has missed God in different ways, and they both need the good news of Jesus. And these were two groups that were viciously committed to us versus them. Jews and Gentiles just did not get along with each other. There was no respect in the culture for each other. It was socially acceptable for them to be in conflict. It was even required to be in conflict in some circles. And sadly, this idea of us versus them also characterizes many people in the church today. Martin Luther King Jr. said famously, Long ago, he said, it's appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. There are so many churches that are filled with people who are all like each other. It's easy. It's so easy for people to go to church where the community is really just an echo chamber for your cultural, political, and even spiritual views. We are tempted to have this us versus them mentality. We're tempted in the church to do this same thing. I mean, think about this. Think about how many ways this can manifest itself even in our church. We've got old people versus young people. Man, why does the music have to be so loud? Why, or on the other side, like, why do we have to sing these songs that are so old? Right? Oh, it's because of them. Well, I'm not one of them, so I don't like that. So we've got old versus young. We also have new Christians versus mature Christians. Right? New Christians who are full of energy, full of life, and yet, and they think they might kind of know everything, but they don't. And then you've got mature Christians who have been walking with God for a long period of time, who have been with Jesus, who have 
like recognized like the the ups and the downs of life. They've got a very a much deeper understanding, a more nuanced understanding of the Bible. Not everything's black and white. They can live in the gray. Um, then we've got Republicans versus Democrats here in the church. I think it's fascinating that so many people, when they come to our church, they think, wow, like this is a church that believes what I believe politically. And then they find out, oh man, there are people, a lot of people on the other side of the aisle here in this church. And some people can handle that. Some people can't. And we've got conservative Bible thumping Christians versus the gay community here, even in our church. And so Paul is addressing this us versus them mentality between Jews and Gentiles in the first century. And as we get to see him address that in the church in Rome, we get to watch, we get to learn, and then we get to apply this situation to our lives here and in our church today. So let me just give you context here. Paul ended chapter two telling the Jews that all of their privileges as the chosen people of God, as the chosen nation, all these privileges, they don't mean anything when these people ignore God. They don't mean anything when you use those privileges as opportunities to promote yourself and to exalt yourself and to self-righteously look down on other people. And he actually says that Gentiles who love Jesus actually become the, what the Jews were supposed to be, but failed to be. And so in this sense, he almost says that being a Jew is irrelevant. Being a Jew doesn't matter. And so that's what prompts him to ask the question that he asks in Romans chapter 3, verse 1. He says, then, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? He's saying, is there any point in being a Jew? Or is there any point Is there any point to circumcision? And Paul asks these questions because he knows that if his readers are following his train of thought, then this is going to be the question that he's, uh, that they're thinking. And so for those of you who like to study the Bible, when you come across a question like this, you have to ask yourself, was I expecting Paul to ask this question? Um, That's important because if you can tell why what Paul has just said produces the question that he asks, for instance, here in chapter 3, verse 1, then you've understood his thinking. You're following his train of thought. It's really a good test. And Paul does this throughout this letter. He does it in some of his other letters. Um, but if you come to a question like this in the text and you think, huh, this is strange. It's kind of out of left field. Why is, he, why is Paul talking about this? Well, that's, a que- that's, a, that's an indication then that you really don't have your finger on the pulse of the flow of Paul's thought. And so, so what Paul has done is he's just basically said that you don't need to be circumcised. You don't need to be Jewish to know God, but that actually being truly Jewish, like Gentiles can be truly Jewish um, even without circumcision. And so Paul knows that the Gentiles are then, they want to jump on. want to say, man, he knows the Gentiles are looking to undermine the Jews and get rid of their arrogant ways. And so Paul asks the very question that the Gentiles are asking. He's like, hey, the Jews are out, right? The Jews are irrelevant, right? And the Jews might also be asking the same question. They might have ended chapter two, listening to it being read to them in the church or reading it later and thinking, wow, Paul, you just told us that being Jewish isn't necessary. Are we then irrelevant? 
And maybe some of you feel that way. Gosh, God, am I irrelevant? It feels like I'm irrelevant. And so Paul is voicing the question that's on everybody's mind at the end of chapter two. Is there any point to being a Jew? What advantage has the Jew or what is the value of circumcision? And Paul answers that in verse two. He says, there is much advantage in every way. He says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And so what he's saying here is he's like, hold on, Gentiles, not so fast. Don't discount the Jews. They might have become self-righteous. They might actually be just as far away from God as you were. But don't forget, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. That phrase, the oracles of God, this is God's revelation of himself. Catch this. It is so fantastic, but it's so familiar to us that it loses its punch. Right? God has actually spoken to people. God has actually told us what he thinks and how he feels. I mean, think about that. God, the God who made the universe, the God who holds all things in the palm of his hand, has actually revealed to us how he thinks and how he feels. Without the oracles of God, which are brought together in the Bible that we have, without the oracles of God, we actually would never know God for sure. I mean, we'd have ideas about God, but we would never really know if our ideas were right. This is so, so powerful. Without God speaking to us, we would never know things for sure. I mean, we'd never know the depth of our need for salvation. Without God speaking, we'd never understand that God loves us and is committed to us. I mean, think about it. We'd hope, we would hope that that was true, but we would never know for sure. In fact, just about every other religion in a sense, says that when something goes wrong in life, when something bad is happening to you, what's the conclusion? You must have done something to deserve it. The gods must be angry with you in some way. And we would never know for sure without the Bible. I mean, without the Bible, we would have no confidence that there even is salvation. Let me just give you just a list of some things that we'd never know for sure. Okay. Without the Bible, we would know that there is a creator, but we would never know that that creator is also bringing about a new creation. That's second Corinthians chapter five or 17. Without the Bible, we'd never know for sure. We'd know that God will judge but we never know for sure that God also justifies. That's Romans 3.26. We know that God condemns sinners, but we never know that he himself was condemned so that he might receive sinners. 2 Corinthians 5.21. 
We know the righteous requirements of the law. We know what good and evil is, but we would never know that God has revealed a righteousness apart from the law. Romans 3.21 We know that there is a God, but we would never know that God also became man. That's John 1.14 And we know that God is in authority over all things, but we never know that this God also humbled himself, coming as a servant to us and dying on the cross. Philippians 2 verses 5 through 8 And so, friends, we desperately need the Bible. The Bible gives us assurance of what God thinks and what God feels. It tells us what God has done. There is so much comfort in the Bible. There's so much comfort in knowing for sure that this is what God has done. This is how God thinks. This is what God feels. And there's also, there's not just comfort in the Bible, but there's also excitement in the Bible because the Bible also stretches us. It stretches us to live what the Bible calls an abundant life. Jesus says, I've come that you might live and that you might live abundantly. The Bible says that God wants us to live the best life we could possibly live. And that life is lived in a relationship with God. And that life is full of glory and honor and immortality. Think about this. God spoke the Bible into existence so that we would live lives that are glorious, that are honorable, and that will last forever. And where do you hear this? Where do you get this message that you The the idea that you could live that kind of life. I mean, God spoke the Bible into existence so that we would live as people who are strong, people who are faithful, people who are understanding of others, people who are willing and feel safe enough to be vulnerable, that we would be servant leaders, that we'd be a blessing to others, that we'd be people who flourish and cause other people around us to flourish. The Bible stretches us. The Bible builds us up. The Bible sends us out to do more than we would do on our own, to be with the power of God alive in our lives so that we can do more than we could do on our own. This is actually one of the things that sealed the deal for me with Jesus. This is one of the things that got me over the hump and into the family of God was that someone told me, yes, Jesus asks us to make him king and Lord over us. We have to submit to him in every way. We have to bow to his authority. He needs to be in control of our lives. And I was like, how in the world am I going to do that? How in the world would I want to do that? Like, why would I want to give up control and authority of my life? And the person that I asked that question to said, well, let me tell you about abundant life that Jesus has in store for you, if you make that commitment to him, he will give you a life that is greater than any life that you could live on your own. You will find more meaning, more purpose, more power, more influence, more satisfaction, more peace than anything that you could have without him. And I wrestled with that And I got to a place where I said, Jesus, if that's what you're promising, 
than I'm in. Because I need more peace than I have right now on my own. I need more meaning and satisfaction that I have right now than I have right now on my own. And so these are things that we would never know for sure, but we get the comfort, we get the excitement of what the Bible offers us in a relationship with God. And so this, I mean, this is why you've got to read the Bible. This is why, I mean, you can meet this God. You can spend time with this God. You can know this God. You can have this God alive and active in your life. I mean, reading the Bible in some ways, in the very beginning, it's like going on blind dates with God. Right? As you're reading, like every time you read, it's like you're spending time with him. You're finding out what he's like. You're finding out who he is. You're getting pictures and glimpses. It's, it's kind of like, you know, with, and I get it. Like sometimes there's parts of the Bible that we struggle with. Sometimes we're swiping left. Sometimes we're swiping right when it comes to God as we get to know him in the Bible. I get it. There's things in there that make us uncomfortable, but we wrestle with it. We get to know him. We get to try to ask questions. We get to try to understand who is this God? What is he like? What has he done? And do I want to commit my life to a relationship with him? City Bible reading is a great tool that our church uses to teach you how to read the Bible. It gives you like bite-sized chunks of the Bible to read on a daily basis. But what's better than that is it actually gives you a method. It helps you so that as you read the Bible, it'll teach you how to meet God and deepen your relationship with him. These CBR journals, they're $5. They're in the cafe space. You can pick one up on your way out. And so that's generally speaking, the glory of having the oracles of God. Paul is saying, Gentiles, don't write them off, right? They have the oracles of God. They have three-fourths of the Bible. Um, They had the whole Bible back when Paul was writing, right? Because there was no New Testament at that point. And so he's saying they had the oracles of God. They knew God. They could find out what God was like. They had that. We don't want to throw them out because they have the oracle. That's the beginning of the glory and why they are not them as Jews. And this issue of us versus them also requires the Bible. Because think about this. Why would you open up your life to one of them? Why would you open up your life to someone who's different from you? Why would you reach out if you knew you'd be misunderstood? I mean, it's so much easier to simply stay with people that are like you, right? It's so much safer. And this is for anybody who might be them for you, right? Them might be people who are richer than you, that make you feel like self-conscious and not good enough when you're around them. It might be people that are poorer than you, people that you don't feel like you can relate to, people that you feel like you don't have answers for, Um, It could be old or young, new Christians or mature Christians. It could be Democrat Christians or Republican Christians, African-American, Caucasian, Hispanic, Asian. Who is them to you? Paul is speaking to us and saying, not so fast. Not so fast. Don't exclude them because they're different. But maybe, maybe at the same time, them is not someone so different from you. Maybe them is actually someone already close to you. I mean, think about it this way. 
Maybe right now, them is someone that's a them because they've hurt you. Because you're in conflict with them. Maybe them right now is your spouse or the person you're dating. Maybe them is a friend in church who's hurt you. Maybe them is someone in the church that you have hurt. I mean, without the Bible, relationship difficulties are a reason to leave. Because if things get hard, just cut people off. If you don't see eye to eye with somebody, why stay? Why forgive? Why do the hard work of understanding of forgiveness and reconciliation? Why would you suffer through the pain of trying to build a relationship with someone who's different from you or to rebuild a relationship with someone who is in conflict or has hurt you? I mean, it is so much easier to just reject people that have hurt you and to move on. And there are two things that we need the Bible to remind us of about them. Okay, the first thing is that God loves them too. God loves them too. In fact, God wants to make them part of us. Okay, it's easier. It's easier for us to treat them and to exclude them and to push away from them. But Jesus comes to us in the Bible and he says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. And this is the heart of God. God wants to love and to renew the whole world. God wants to save all kinds of people. God wants us all to return to him and live in an encouraging, life-flourishing relationship with him. But God also wants us to open ourselves and to return to each other. God wants us to be his family, where we all have him as father, and we all realize that our faith means that we are brothers and sisters with everyone else who believes in Jesus. There's this one amazing image of this reality at the end of the Bible. It's in the book of Revelation. It's chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. It says this, And I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And so this vision of people from every tribe and every tongue and every family, people from all walks of life, from every neck of the woods, from every part, every square inch of the planet, this, they're all together in one group, in one family. This is part of what, what is behind what Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1. This is part of what's behind Paul saying, look, not so fast. Don't write the Jews off as irrelevant because God loves them too and they are part of the world that God wants to save and unite together. And so in your relationships, when there's tension and difficulty and conflict, this is a chance to love others 
the way God loves the world. This is a chance for us to be like Jesus. Jesus says, yes, it's hard. Yes, it's easier to bolt. Yes, it's easier to move on. But what Jesus is saying, what Paul is saying in Romans 3, verses 1 and 2, he's saying, wait, is there a purpose for them? Yes, don't write them off. Jesus is saying, look, is it hard to love them? Well, yeah, and now you know how I feel. I totally get it. Jesus is saying, yes, people are messy. People are self-centered. People are impatient. People are sinful. People will hurt you. They will ignore you. They will press your buttons. I totally get it. And Jesus says, but look, I responded by not leaving. I didn't move on. I moved in. I actually came closer. I responded by coming to earth and I am committed to suffering to rescue these relationships. I was betrayed and falsely accused and abused and ultimately I was tortured and killed because of people's sins against me. I really do understand how hard it is to love them. But I am committed to the world. I'm committed to loving people and renewing people from all over the world so that we would once again become a worldwide family. I'm committed to gathering people from all over the world where the only thing they have in common is that they believe and they're committed to following me. And this is where our faith trumps our identity. This is where what we believe about Jesus is actually more important than the things that make us different. Now, you might not believe this, but if you believe in Jesus and someone else believes in Jesus, then what you have in common is infinitely more important, is infinitely more significant than what separates you. Whether it's politics or economics or race or denomination or orientation, like what you have in common is more important. If you have Jesus in common, then something unites you together in a way that is more important than anything else. Jesus says, this is my heart for the world. And before you say back to Jesus, look, Jesus, I just can't do what you do. I'm not you. It's too hard. Before you worry about how in the world are you going to love others the way Jesus loves others. Jesus Jesus actually would interrupt you and say, look, before you worry about that, before you worry about doing what I do for the world, stop for a minute and remember that I love you. Stop for a minute and remember 
that I didn't just come for the world, but I came for you. You are very different from me, but I love you. You have done things and said things and thought things and felt things and wanted things that are so very different from me and what I think and what I've done and what I feel and what I want. But I am committed to you. I'm committed to understanding you, to forgiving you, to encouraging you, to being present with you. I'm committed to you having me and my presence and even my power in your life. I'm committed to you knowing that I am with you and that I love you and that I accept you and that you are adopted into my family and that I care about you. You are the reason that I came. And I want you to receive this before you think about imitating this or trying to imitate this. Before you see me as the example you need to follow, I want you to see me as the one who loved you so much that I came for you. And so, God loves them too, and he wants to make them part of us. But then the second thing, the second thing, and this is powerful and important, is that God gives them to us. So not only that God loves them too, but God gives them to us. Because not only does he want to make them part of us, but he wants us to make them part of us. He wants us to actually join him in extending his love and extending his welcome, extending his understanding. He wants us to display him to them so that they aren't them anymore. With Jews and Gentiles in the first century, in some ways, Paul's saying, hey, look, they have, the Jews, they have experience with God. They have a perspective with God. They have a history with God that's different from yours. They have life. They have thousands of years of a relationship with God as a nation, as families from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation. You Gentiles, you're just starting out following Jesus. They have a perspective that can help you to know God better. They have a perspective that can help you understand the Bible better. They have a perspective that can teach you something about God and about his word. And so you can't throw them out. You can't disregard them because you need them, actually. They need you. You need them. And so whoever them is in your life, you need them. They have an experience of God that's different from yours. Them has an experience with the Bible that's different from yours. Them widens your view of who God is and what God's doing in the world. Them widens your view of the Bible and how God speaks through it. And so what is this calling us to do? Well, this is calling us to take steps to reconcile. 
This is calling us to take steps if there's conflict to make it right. This means you taking the first step and going to someone that you're in conflict with and saying, hey, I want us to make this right. I want to heal the conflict that's between us. And if you can't do that on your own, if you and this other person together by yourselves can't make this thing work, if you can't be reconciled, then you need to get someone else to join you. You get someone else to come in and help you to be reconciled. It could be a friend. It could be your life group leader. It could be an elder. It could be me, someone on staff. Like we have leaders in this church that can help you to reconcile if you can't do it on your own. And so we need to take steps to reconcile. And, and listen, there's a group of you here that I'm not talking to right now. Okay. I just need you to know this. All right. Cause there's a group of people here. Um, that have very soft consciences. And when I talk about forgiving and reconciling and making things right, what some of you are hearing me say that I'm not saying, but some of you are hearing me saying that you're in an abusive relationship and you need to go back into that abusive relationship and let that person continue to abuse you. Hear me loud and clear. I am not saying that. Reconciliation and forgiveness and love in an abusive relationship does not mean you go back in to continue to be abused. If you're in an abusive relationship, then there is other wisdom that the Bible has for us that would tell you you do not have to go in and be anybody's punching bag, physically, emotionally, verbally, spiritually. If you're in an abusive relationship, then... Love does not look like tempting them to continue to hurt you. Love does not look like you giving them the opportunity to continue to hurt you. Love actually looks like you getting out of that relationship and getting help. Love looks like you drawing lines in the sand and making it clear that this is not appropriate. And if you can't do that on your own, if it's not safe for you to do that on your own, then come to the leadership of our church and we will help you. We will help you. And if it means getting you out of a marriage that's abusive, we will help you do that. So I want you to know that this talk of reconciliation, this talk of uh, of forgiveness does not apply in that way if you're being abused. And we have to say that because... Typically, folks that are in abusive relationships that are being abused think they deserve it. They think that they've earned this. They think they've done something and they should be treated that way. And that's not, this does not apply in that way to you. Come get help. But for the rest of us, for the rest of us with conflict that we just haven't dealt with, you need to deal with it. And so take steps to reconcile. Also, I think this passage is teaching us to take steps to get to know someone who's different. Okay, our faith in Jesus trumps our identity, right? Faith in Jesus means that the whole church is us. Faith in Jesus makes the whole church us. So you've heard that phrase that there's no I in team, right? This may sound cheesy, and at first I thought this was cheesy, but I think this is real. Let this sink in. 
There is no them in church. There's no them in church. Let this find its way deep into your heart as you think about people that you're in conflict with, people that you don't understand, people that are different from you politically, racially, socioeconomically, people that that you don't get along with. They are not them. There is no them in church. We are all us. I've got to say, look, we are just beginning in this series. We're going to apply this more and more deeply in the weeks to come as we look at the first 20 verses of this chapter with this series. If you need to reconcile with someone, take steps. If you can't do it on your own, get help from a third person, either a friend or one of the leaders of the church. But then, again, this week, is there one person who's different from you in the church that you can get to know better? Is there someone that you can get to know better in the church? It could be today after the service. It could be that you need to text someone, invite them to coffee or go have breakfast or lunch or beer. Let me just make it really practical. Here's just two questions or two things you can ask them. Number one, tell me about your spiritual journey. Hey, what's your relationship with God been like? Tell me about how you came to believe in Jesus. Just listen, find out what what is God doing in this person's life? And then another thing you can ask is, what do you love most about God? Like, what is it that you love most about God? And just listen, listen and open yourself up to learning about what God has shown someone else, what God has done in someone else's life. As that happens, your view widens. Your view of who God is widens. Your view of what God is like widens. And I'll tell you what, your understanding of the scripture will widen as you encounter people that see things in the Bible that are meaningful to them that haven't been meaningful to you. There are verses and stories that will be meaningful to other people. And you'll be like, huh, I've never thought about that. Wow, that's really meaningful for you. That's powerful for you. This is part of the excitement of being part of the church. And so do that. Seek people out this week. Just seek one person out to get to know them a little bit better. Make someone who is them one of us this week. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for loving us who were them until you came to make us who were them, us with you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for coming to love us and to make us part of your family. Help us to show that love to them so that they won't be them anymore. And Jesus, if there is conflict in our church for the conflicts that are in our church, please bring your presence. Please bring your love to us so that we might take steps 
to be reconciled and to heal broken relationships. Do this so that our church would be more of the us that you envision at the end of time. Break down barriers. Help us to be more inclusive and to demonstrate a wider view of who you are so that the world would see our love for each other and think, wow. Wow, that's a place. That's a place that has real family. That's a place that is so transcendent across boundaries and borders and lines that God must be the thing that fuels their love. Help us with this, Jesus. Show us what the steps are this week for us to walk in this. We pray in your name. Amen.